Good evening. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and you're on the radio on the Divorce and Family Law Talk Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law legal experts Vince Davis and Raj Matani answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, and spousal support. We're on every Wednesday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., taking your calls. And as a guest, you can call in at 646-668-8791. Again, that's 646-668-8791. Good evening, Raj. Are you with me? Hey, Vince. How are you? Doing fine. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. It's been a uh, a busy week here at the office again, and uh, I'm sure there's a many of our listeners are probably catching the uh, Warriors and Cavaliers game on tonight. But uh, for those of you who are listening, we really appreciate your time. Who's your favorite uh, in the Cavaliers and Warriors game tonight? Uh, you know, I went to college in the Bay Area, so uh, I've since my my hometown uh, Lakers and Clippers are out. I've I've been rooting for the Warriors since then. Oh, I didn't know you went to college in the Bay Area. Where'd you go? Um, I went to a, a small private school called the University of the Pacific. It's located in Stockton, California. So uh it's it's pretty ironic. We we say we're University of the Pacific, but we're hundreds of miles away from the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rush, tonight we have some questions uh, from listeners, and I wanted to get to the first question. Uh, and the first question is, a few years ago, I divorced my husband. He was abusing me and my three daughters. Since then, I've gotten a restraining order against him. Through the grapevine, I know he has moved to the city of Santa Monica, where he lives with his parents. I, too, have the majority of my family in Santa Monica, and I would like to buy a house there with my new husband. Would this violate anything in place? So uh, this is an interesting question, Vince. We, it has some uh, domestic violence elements to it as well as some custody elements to it. Um, and for our listeners who, who were paying attention last week, we went pretty in-depth into the uh, celebrity side of TV with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case. Um, but when you have a restraining order, um, and I'm assuming this one's a permanent restraining order. When you have a permanent restraining order, there are specific things that the other person cannot do. Usually it's a stay away, a non-communication, non-harassment, um, all of those types of things. So if if a person is considering moving, they want to be aware that where they're moving is not in, a, in an area close to the restrained party, that they're able to keep their distance and do all those types of things. So... Um, nothing specifically in an order would prevent them from moving, but, you know, in consideration of your safety, you want to be, uh, you know, sort of aware of how your residence or where, you, or where you're going to be could impact, uh, you know, sort of old wounds and, re- and bring them again to the surface. Additionally, 
considering that that, that they what sounds like three minor children, if uh, she's moving anywhere far away or changing the schools, doing all those types of things, um, she may have to get a court order to make that happen. So um, for this kind of issue, this is definitely something where we would need to see the papers, need to see the DV order, see any orders on custody and visitation, and then we could probably give the most complete answer. Okay, so we're missing a little bit of information. We're missing quite a bit of information. Um, and actually, Vince, I, uh, I mentioned our show last week sort of on purpose, and I know this might catch you off guard, but um, there, there's a new development this week in the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Really? What is it? So uh, just two days ago, um, it came to the surface, it was brought to light that uh, Amber Heard was arrested for domestic violence in the state of Washington against her then uh, domestic partner. Um, big incident at uh, uh, Seattle Tacoma Airport. She was arrested and booked and actually appeared in court on uh, criminal DV charges. Um, but the uh, prosecutor there declined to move forward with the case because both parties resided in California. So it would be too much for them to subject them to that jurisdiction. But uh, where it could become relevant in the in her current case is um, you know these past acts of abuse, and especially related to allegations that she may have fabricated this whole incident. So uh, the question I have for you, Vince, is how do you think the uh, past actions of a person claiming DV or a DV litigant have on their have on their case and their credibility? Well, it definitely damages their credibility. Um, and that's all the judge has to go by uh, when making a decision about whether domestic violence happened, who was the aggressor, or, or it didn't happen. And in this particular case, um, you know, the judge wasn't there when these events took place between, or these alleged events took place between Mr. Miss Her and Mr. Depp. So, yeah. you know, it, it it really it really weakens her credibility. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, these her allegations are false. It's just, just right. weakens her credibility because um, we don't know whether they were tr- whether the allegations are true or not. We weren't there. So um, I can't believe, though, that um, her attorneys didn't do something to try to um, lessen this blow. Well, then, yeah, that was going to be because my follow-up question. How would you how would you handle this? Would you um, object to it being introduced as evidence during testimony? Would you exclude it? Um, play the PR war? How would you how would you maybe handle it? You know, that's a tough one because I don't know if it can be admitted into evidence. I mean, we're in a Los Angeles courtroom, and this happened allegedly where. Uh, Seattle, Washington. Okay, so any police reports are going to be perhaps hearsay. You know, I um, I don't know if they can be used in a domestic violence case. Um, I don't know if some of those witnesses can be brought down to testify. I guess an important witness would be her past partner, who allegedly, you know, this incident took place to testify as to, you know, Mrs. Hurd's propensity towards violence or domestic violence or, you know, anger management problems. Um, You know, so 
you know, I don't know. I, I mean, it raises a lot of questions. I would want to know what specifically the police report says, you know, like who started it, how did it start? I mean, was Miss Heard you know, involved in self-defense or was she involved as being an aggressor? I mean, that type of thing plays out, you know, both ways, because if she was in it, was not the aggressor, maybe she has a propensity for getting into relationships where she's, you know, continually the victim. And and that and that happens. I've seen that happen many times in many of cases that we're involved in. Um, we represent one spouse who continually gets into uh, uh, relationships where they are the victim of domestic violence. And it's not necessarily the woman that's always the victim. And you know, many times it's the man who's the victim. And um, so it, you know, I, I'd have to do a lot more investigation. Uh, to find out if, you know, this type of evidence is going to be useful. Now, on the surface, just talking, you know, about this stuff on the radio and just hearing about it on the news, of course, it has a negative impact against Ms. Hurd's allegations. Oh, no, she was involved in domestic violence before. She must be the domestic violence perpetrator. She must be the one that has always started this. I'm just surprised that her attorneys, you know, didn't know about this or didn't take steps to lessen the blow about this or prepare the public or prepare the, you know, maybe they did. I haven't seen the papers or prepare the court uh, to know that, um, you know, this type of thing might come up or was in the background. Because if something's, you know, necessarily going to hurt your credibility in a court hearing, you want to be the person to bring it up, not your opponent, not the news media. Right, right. So, when did when um, did this news when did this news story break? I hadn't heard that. Um, about two days ago, you know, I I uh, yeah, no, it was this morning actually. So um, it was a, it was a two two layered story. In fact, it was they broke the news of this previous arrest, and additionally that. Um, uh, Ms. Hurd had asked a previous attorney of hers to have the Washington authorities delete any traces of this um, uh, arrest prior to her relationship with Johnny Depp. So she's been aware to impact her, her public perception and her relationships and has tried to keep it under wraps. So um, maybe you know there was no way that her attorneys could have found out about it. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I always um well, I'm never surprised, you know, you you're an attorney, you talk to your client, you think they've told you everything, and then <laughs> lo, lo and behold, uh, something pops up in the news. I guess it's well, better than popping up now than popping up when you're in the trial or in the hearing. Yeah. That would be uh I think that would be grounds to requesting an immediate reset, uh I would think. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, Vince, that brings up like uh, it brings up another interesting uh, a piece of advice for clients, especially when they come to meet with an attorney. It's so critical that clients bring everything, bring all of your papers, everything that you can find. Well, first of all, keep everything you have, and then bring everything with you to a meeting. Uh, I think clients come in sometimes and they just want to tell their story. But it's so critical that an attorney be able to see if a court has made any rulings 
or if any other papers have been filed to really understand your case. Um, and I think, you know, clients should be aware of that every time they come into a meeting. You know, and so, so many times that doesn't happen. So, you know, we as lawyers need to tell them and have our staff remind them, hey, bring everything that you have to the meeting with the lawyer in the first, you know, the first meeting especially. Because then it's just a, it's a point it's a pointless meeting and and you really in order to receive good advice you have to provide information so um, in order to make that that amount of time the most efficient for everybody involved um, it's critical that that information be provided. Raj, I'm going to go to our second question this evening. Sounds great. Um, someone wrote in and asked this. Uh, my husband and I have been in a relationship since high school, about eight years. We decided to get a divorce due to issues within our relationship. One evening, after not seeing him or being sexually active with him for three months, he invited me over to his apartment. Soon after I got there, I fell asleep on his bed. I had all my clothes on, and there was no type of sexual activity discussed that night. After being asleep, I woke up to him spooning me and touching me sexually. I quickly left and have not talked to him since. Is this sexual abuse if it's coming from your husband? Well, this is I, the first time that we've been presented with this question. Um, and this it raises an interesting issue um, because sexual assault is um, all the more prevalent these days. But the baseline answer to this is any any action that is done without your consent could potentially be assault, could potentially be sexual abuse. Um, and this is more of a criminal question than a family law question, but, uh, and Vince, I'd have to defer to you on, on that aspect of the law, but, you know, in my, in my understanding and my experience, if there was any activity being done without any parties informed, um, and understandable consent, then that's that's sexual assault. You are correct. That is the uh, black book definition of sexual assault. So what would you advise for this client? Should she speak to the authorities? Should she um, file for a restraining order, perhaps? What would be your advice? You know, I... I don't know. I would have to ask her, you know, what she plans on doing or what her goals are. Um, the fact that she was over there visiting her ex-husband, you know, would leave me, lead me initially to believe that perhaps they were working on reconciling. So it, it would be difficult. Now, you know, I'd have to ask her, hey, why were you over there? You know, maybe she was over there to talk about financial issues, you know, in the divorce and or child custody and visitation issues, and maybe she got there and fell asleep, you know, which I can see happening. And, you know, these advances were not welcome, nor they were, uh, you know, nor was he given any type of, uh, you know, indication that she wanted to be in any way intimate with him that evening. Um, it, it would be a hard case for the DA to prosecute, I think, 
um, because of all of the underlying issues. You know, they're still married. She came over there with uh, on her own free will, that type of thing. But, you know, that does not lessen the claim and does not mean the fact that she was not sexually abused by her husband who she's going, you know, through a divorce with. So I I would have to talk to her some more and find out, you know, you know, what her ultimate goals are. I mean, if her ultimate goal was to reconcile with the guy in the future, uh, prosecuting him with a domestic violence uh, restraining order or criminally, that's not going to help the reconciliation. And, probably guarantee you know, that they won't they won't that they won't <laughs> yeah, ever get reconciled. It's funny how uh, how criminal proceedings under a restraining order tend to <laughs> tend to create that result. But uh you know, Vince, how uh you know, when you're meeting with clients for the first time or let's say somebody's coming in for a consultation, how big of a how early do you discuss the goals of the litigation or the goals of the pursuit with the client? I um, try to do it, find out about it um, right away. You know, typically um, what happens is if you're a potential client and you come in to meet with me, you know, after the the chit-chats and greetings, I ask them, why did they come to see me? And generally they tell me a story about what's happened or what's about to happen. and, uh, And then I ask them at some point, hey, what do you want out of this? You know, because generally in legal proceedings and family law matters, I mean, things can go in a thousand different directions. So what I think my job is, and and, and a lot of attorneys don't agree with me, but what my job is, I think, is to find out what the client wants and to get what the client wants. So I ask them from the first day, from the first day. And I don't, and I've heard a lot of clients tell me this, you know, hey, Mr. Davis, my last attorney or another attorney never asked me what I wanted and just uh, did what she, he or she thought was best. And that's not what I wanted at all. So I make sure to ask clients what they want and then I try to come up with a strategy and a plan to try to get them what they want. And what if, what if the, what the client wants isn't, you uh, sort of reasonable um, or legally feasible. How do you respond to that? I try to explain it to them. I try to explain to them um, what is feasible, what is reasonable. Now, here's the trick, Raj. The difference between attorneys could be experience, knowledge, expertise. And one attorney might tell the client, oh, that's not possible. Another attorney might tell the client, oh, that is possible. Maybe it's not probable, but it's possible. So, you know, when a client sits down with an attorney in a family law setting, they want to make sure, the client should make sure that, first of all, this attorney has the expertise to practice in family law. I mean, I think that you would agree that sometimes there are attorneys who practice in family law who really aren't experts in family law. I mean, have you ever had that? 
I I would definitely agree with that. It's it's one of the things when I was um, when I was in law school when you sort of when you tell people you're doing family law or when the subject of family law is brought up, it's sort of viewed at um, as low on the totem pole. And um, a lot of other attorneys that have all have always said, well, I just do family law to help me pay the bills. It gives me a good revenue source, and I can do sort of the you know in the in betweens when I'm in between big civil cases. And I found that very interesting because, and it's the reason why I practice or focus exclusively on family law. Um, I found that a troubling approach to legal practice because how can one be such an expert in so many areas of law if you just do it casually? You know, Vince, you're one of the rare guys who's been doing this for 30 years actively um, in both juvenile and family, so it's, you know, your experience base is very high. But there are so many attorneys who just dabble into a family law case and think that they can do it because the proceedings are somewhat informal, but there's a lot of nuance. There's, you know, we have to follow the rules of evidence. We have to follow the rules of civil procedure. And um, you sort of can't get away with being a, a fly-by-night practitioner. Right. You know, that's one of the dirty little secrets of um, family law here in California, probably in most, is that you may go to an attorney, and just because that attorney has a license to practice law, he or she may tell you that they are well qualified to do a family law case. It's just not true. Just not true at all. Um, and, and I think the attorney... Um, may be doing a disservice to the client, um, but it, it's akin to you know someone going to a medical doctor who uh, is an ear, nose, and throat guy, and uh, you know the client wanting uh, heart surgery. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. unlikely that you know that person is qualified to do heart surgery. So. I, I think it's a dirty little secret that uh, attorneys, you know, mislead some clients that they're experts in divorce and family law when they're really not. The other thing I think that's a dirty little secret in family law is, uh, and I think this is in most areas of practice, is that um, clients don't understand that if they're going to retain an attorney, um in family law, that they need to obtain an attorney who is an expert trial attorney. Um, because so much of family law happens in a courtroom, happens at hearings, happens, happens at trials. And just because the attorney knows the law in family law, almost every judge that I know in family law thinks that he or she already knows the law and family law. So knowing family law is, is, gets you nothing. It gets you to a zero neutral point. The attorney has to be skilled at proving or disproving something in court. And those, you know, that takes trial skills, trial knowledge, trial experience. And that's totally separate from knowing family law. I mean, it's just another skill set. So um, sometimes I get, you know, I've been involved in cases where the other side, um, well, here, I'll tell you, I won't say his name, but 
I I went to a case a couple of years ago in family law, and the attorney on the other side settled the case. And uh, afterwards, he told me in so many words that he was very concerned about going to trial against me because he knew that I was an experienced trial attorney. Now, I don't know if he was telling the truth or if he was just making me feel good. You know, maybe he <laughs> thought he'd tell me something good because he got the best of me in the settlement or something like that. Right. But I, I I do see that frequently, especially, you know, if I'm going up against someone that's a, a, a very young attorney who doesn't have a lot of experience. Um, so, it, it, you know, knowing family law and being a good trial attorney, those are totally different things. And when you hire a trial, excuse me, when you hire a trial, uh, when you hire a family law attorney, you want to make sure that that, tri- that that attorney has significant trial experience or at the very least is being supervised and assisted by someone who has a lot of trial experience. So I think those are two, you know, dirty little secrets of family law and hiring family law attorneys. Well, I was just going to um... – you you said a lot of the, of your experiences, but I, I'm specifically recalling an instance you had not too long, maybe two weeks ago, where the judge um, sort of said to you in more words or less that uh, she was very surprised by your trial tactics or trial knowledge in the context of family law and that it was so unexpected. Yeah, that, that happened out in Orange County, and... Um... I had never appeared in front of this judge. As a matter of fact, I'm told she's a fairly rare, um, new family law judge, um, but you know, very, very, an excellent judge, very fair, very competent. Um, she didn't always rule in my favor in all the rulings, evidentiary rulings. But what I appreciated with her is that um, she had a very good knowledge of uh, evidence. And someone told me that she had been a previous criminal judge, so though, you know, of course, she's going to be an expert in evidence. And um, uh, when it came time to keeping certain things out that were going to hurt my client, um, I knew the evidentiary objections, I knew the evidentiary arguments, and it surprised the other attorney on the other side. And um, I think it's, you know, in some places it's kind of a culture. Uh, Things are more relaxed in family law, uh, but that's not actually the law, <laughs> you know, in family law. Yeah. The code of evidence still applies. Uh, the code of civil procedure still applies, even though we're in a family law court doing a child in custody, you know, hearing or child in custody, child and visitation battle. So, I, I mean, when clients are going to hire an attorney, they have to make sure that that attorney has you know, experience in uh, trials and in litigation because it's totally different from being a, a knowledgeable about family law, about being fa- knowledgeable about family law. And I want to tell people just because someone has a license to practice law does that not mean they know family law, that they're an expert in family law. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're an experienced trial attorney. Great. Great advice, Ben. Should, uh, should we move on to another client question? Sure. So the third question for this evening is, I've been married to my husband for three years, and I would like to divorce him. 
Would he have rights to any part of my business? He has been working for me, administration work, and some supervising slash management work for about two years. Hmm. What do you think? So in so this is an interesting question, and um, it's actually often the, one of the more contentious elements of family law when it comes to dividing a business that um, has been a part of either one spouse has built for themselves or both both spouses have worked on building. Uh, so they've been married for three years, and he's been working for her for about two. So the real question um the real question becomes how much of that business did he contribute to the growth of? And the name of the uh, case statute and um, and law on this escapes me at the moment, but basically there would be a analysis of whether or not and how much this husband contributed to the growth of the business and whether that gives him a right to, to an interest in the business or into a value of the growth. Um, it would also be used potentially for doing an assessment of um, uh, of spousal support. You know, one of the things that you're going to have to look at in spousal support are income. And so the amount that he's been earning and the skills that he would have to support himself after the end of the marriage, um, you can look to, to this business and, and get a good understanding of, you know, of what he's capable of. So um, sort of the simple answer is that it depends. <laughs> Uh, it depends. You know, we'd have to do an analysis of the business, see what he uh, contributed to it, what work he's done, and then um, depending on that, uh, he might own an interest. Also, the growth of the business during the time of the marriage, he could have an interest too, um, and then potentially as as an as a issue for spousal support, it could also be relevant. So I guess the simple answer is, would he have rights to any part of the business? The simple answer is yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it would. It would. It's one of those issues, and um, like you were saying, Vincent, you know, so much of family law ends up, you know, ends up in court, ends up in trial, and this would be one of the big issues that would probably be brought up in trial, and, um, you know. The wife here who has developed this business would very much need the ex- assistance of an experienced trial attorney to make sure that the right evidence is submitted to substantiate her position, that um, the right discovery is done to acquire that information if some of it's not in her possession, and then to present that accurately to the judge, both in moving papers and in arguments, um, you know, to sort of minimize uh, her exposure. Very good. Um, that's always an interesting question about whether someone uh, owns part of your business after you were married. In this particular gonna... case, in the question, he might own part of the business, you know, a small percentage, and he also may get spousal support based upon the income she's making from the business. Right. You know, sometimes they say it's cheaper to keep her. It might be cheaper to keep him. <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing is it is such a short-term marriage. And so um, when a marriage is that short, this might be the biggest asset that they have. You know, 
Um, a lot of people mm-hmm. are, are renting their, um, you know, for three years, you probably haven't gotten a new car yet. Maybe you don't have kids yet. So, um, you know, he might be realizing that he can uh, hold up the litigation process or sort of hold her hostage by um, making claims to this business. And so she really needs to be on her toes about how she can be defensive about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to our next question. It says, I am a business owner and I have been married four years. I'm able to support my wife and children on my own. I would like to create a post-nuptial agreement to ensure all my assets and accounts will be left to my children and not to my mom, not to my wife. Is this possible? What do you think, Raj? Yes, uh, it is most definitely possible if you can get her to agree to it. Um, there's a couple ways you can actually go about doing this. He can create either a post-nuptial agreement or um, or potentially create a will. Um, if he wants to make, if he knows that he might be with this woman for some time, or um, he's essentially happy in his relationship, but just wants to make sure his assets go to the right, go to his children, uh, he can do it via a post-nuptial agreement or or a will that um, goes around the um, succession laws and gives all of his assets to his children. Um, what do you think about that, Vince? I think he can try to do that, um, but postnuptial agreements are always a little tricky um, because one of the spouses is always going to feel, you know, maybe slighted in some way. I mean, in this particular situation, in order to to leave everything to the children and not the wife, um, he's going to have to get her agreement. And I'm right. not sure, you know, she's going to agree to that. <laughs> right. You know, th- yeah, that's why not... I started out by saying that if he will agree to it, there's a whole list of options. But, um, you know, just like prenuptial agreements and and uh, all other aspects of, I guess, uh, marital life, you know, happy wife, happy life. And uh, I don't know if this will make your wife very happy, knowing that she gets nothing. Or asking her to agree right. to receiving nothing. Right. You know, it, it was kind of a, a weird question because he says, I would like to create a post-nuptial agreement to ensure all my assets and accounts will be left to my children and not to my wife. Is that possible? Um, I, the, the answer is yes, but I think it's going to be very difficult for him to get an agreement on that. <laughs> Yeah, it, that's that's going to be the hardest part. Um, and the, you know, there's so many aspects of that too. Uh, there are, I it would depend on how big his assets and accounts are, but there are limitations on what you can, uh, you know, restrict in, in any sort of prenuptial and postnuptial agreement. Um, he could definitely build in clauses that limit the amount that she would get as spousal support, but. When it comes to issues of the children and things like that, there are you know specific statutory um, restrictions against limiting support to children and things of that nature. So um, he'd have to be very careful about how he drafted the agreement, um, hopefully with the assistance of an attorney, and then how it's presented, notarized, and then um, sort of kept as a record. So um, there would be a big 
sort of big to do about all of those issues. All right, let's look at another question. I am a married man of 14 years. Recently, I bought a property in my name. It's kind of like my own vacation home, Man Cave. (laughs) My wife's name is not on any of the papers. If we get divorced, would she have any rights to my property? Yes, she has rights to half of it. Any... The baseline rule in family law or in dissolution is any property acquired um, during the time of marriage, except for gift, inheritance, or other device, is community property and subject to an equal division by the court. So um, the fact that the one caveat here is if he bought any, if he bought this vacation home with separate property money. Uh, from before the marriage. If he can show that, there may be some arguments and um, litigation as to what whether or not the property is exclusively his. Um, I would argue that it is. But, um, you know, based on these facts as they're presented, um, if he bought the, uh, the house during the time of marriage, regardless of whose name is on it, uh, the house is community property. And so... As it being community property, what is the wife entitled to? She's entitled to half. So if they were to get divorced, uh, they would sell it or um, figure out whether it would be used as an equalization for some other marital property. But she would be entitled to um, half the proceeds or half the value of the house. So if they were to sell it, um, you know, all the money that was used to buy the house was com- could have been community property, she'd get half of that, and then she'd get half of any profits as well. Okay, well, let me throw you a curveball. What if he convinces her this month to get her to sign a claim deed? In other words, she signs a deed that gives all rights, titles, and interests to the husband. And then next year they get divorced. Right. What happens to the property? So that's what's called a transmutation. So in that instance, what ha- what has happened here is that the wife has given up her interest in the home knowingly uh, by signing a quit claim deed. Has knowingly given up her interest and deeded it all all to the husband and b- making it his sole and separate property. So if he was able to get her to sign that then um, uh, he would have to show that in court um, with a proper foundation and presentation to the court. He'd have to show that to them and show why the property is um, his, contrary to the presumption, and then he would be able to keep the entire property for himself. Now, there are arguments otherwise. Yeah. Well, there's, there would be additional. There could be additional argument from her um, that if, even though she deeded the property to him, if he was paying a mortgage with community property funds, then the, com- the community may also begin to earn an interest as well. So, um, you know, he would. This is one of the things where a post-nuptial agreement or a specific um, long-form contract, as opposed to a quick claim deed 
would be the most appropriate to outline that she's giving up her rights to the property, that she gives up um, any interest that could be earned during the marital community, that the property is 100% it. That would be the best way for him to to acknowledge the transfer. But, um, you know, it, it would be a heavily litigated issue if this, if this uh, question and curveball uh, went to court. All right. We're down to our last question. Let's see. Raj, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about something. Maybe you can give some advice to uh, our listeners. Okay. Opinion, one of the biggest mistakes people make when hiring a lawyer, and it could be a lawyer for anything, but in this case, a divorce lawyer, is that a person may make the decision basing selecting an attorney basing solely on price. Did you say price? What do you think of price? Okay. Um, so, what do you think about that? It's a difficult issue, Vince, because, um, you know, for a lot of people, money is very much an issue. Um, you know, people have a budget. They have other expenses they need to maintain. Um, if you're part of a family, you know, you have all these regular expenses, and then all of a sudden here comes an unexpected life event, and you need to allocate the funds for that. Um, so I know a lot of people who, who make that decision based on price. I, I would advise against it personally, not just because it uh, benefits my pocketbook and, and my new hourly billing rate, but, um, you know, it, going, to a per, going to a person who charges a specific rate or a hat, has quoted you a certain rate, um, usually means something. It usually means that they've been an attorney for a while, that they have the resources to litigate your case, that they have the um, time, energy, and experience to provide appropriate representation. But it would be improper to make a decision based solely off that single fact, solely off price. Um, a, an appropriate assessment of an attorney involves multiple factors, including how much they cost, what their experience base is, whether they're you know, an active family law attorney, um, all of these kinds of things. So to make a decision based off any one factor, even if it's price, I think is problematic. But um, to let price be a barrier to effective representation, um, that sort of you know, uh, shouldn't be a barrier that, that affects you know, moving forward in the case. How do you handle that, Vince? Because when... I know some people see a little sticker shock when they come into a consultation. So how do you handle that when they when they say, you know, you're a little too expensive for my budget? You know, interestingly enough, um, a lot of people would say that price is a very big uh, concern or a very big factor uh, when hiring an attorney. Uh, but if you only have a $1,000 budget, you're not going to be able to hire Johnny Cochran if he were still alive to come and win your case. 
However, many clients place too much emphasis on price and not enough emphasis on the overall impact the attorney will have on their case. You know, is the highest priced attorney always the best? Absolutely not. In no. fact, in, in 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 a marketing course for attorneys um, that I once took, the author of that told the readers to dramatically raise their fees because of a lot of a lot of attorneys equate the value of a lot of clients equate the value of an attorney by how much they charge. He says that it's all perception. Right. Well, I don't think it's certainly just perception if you hire someone who charges you tens of thousands of dollars for a case that is, in reality, only worth a few thousand dollars. On the other hand, hiring a least expensive attorney is not always the best way to go either. Attorneys are perceived as a dime a dozen, a commodity, if you will, by many prospective and uh, clients. And because uh, of this, clients sometimes try to find uh, the lowest priced attorney. Uh, the fact is that each attorney is unique, and like any other profession, uh, there are attorneys who are great some who are good, some mediocre, and some who should never be allowed in the courtroom. <laughs> I think I think prospective attorneys need to base their decisions on the attorney who will best fulfill their needs and to help them achieve their desired outcomes. This goes back to the question I always ask at the beginning to the prospective client. What do you want? One way you can know whether an attorney is going to meet your goals and your needs is by whether or not the attorney asks you what your needs are and what your outcomes want to be in order to achieve your goals. When you call the attorneys, do they just tell you how they, go, how they are going to handle your case with finding out what you want and what you really need? You know, it's kind of like, how would you feel if you went to a doctor because you weren't feeling well and the doctor instantly prescribed you some medication without finding out what was really wrong with you? It's the same with attorneys. They should find out what you want and what you need first and see if they have the skills and the experience that can fulfill those needs. All clients and all prospective clients should beware, and this is a warning. I think many attorneys are so desperate for work that they will do and say anything to get hired. Not all attorneys, but some. They will tell the client or the prospective client that they do things that they don't, won't, or can't do. You know, and it's very difficult sometimes in how to spot those attorneys who are phony and how to avoid them like the plague. <laughs> the bottom line is I think that uh, prospective clients have to decide what their budgeted range is. Check out a number of attorneys in that budgeted range 
and choose the best person regardless of price. If the client's budget is so small that you cannot find an excellent attorney, do not hire just anyone. It is far, far better to have no attorney than it is to hire someone who is not good. Save your money until and wait until you can afford someone who is outstanding and someone who fits your budget. Raj, this week I've been corresponding with a woman who needs a family law attorney out in San Bernardino. Okay. She she currently has an attorney, and she, a, a court hearing is fast approaching. It's a request for order hearing, um, and she has lost custody of her child. Um, she wants to gain custody back. And when I told her how much time and work might be needed to turn this case around, she was, you know, in shock. And, um, you know, I think she felt that I was just padding uh, the budget and, you know, telling her that uh, uh, something would cost more than it actually should. So we talked about in detail what work needed to be done. And after that, I told her, I said, look, don't hire me. Go out oh, really? and interview. Yeah, go, I told her to go out and interview other attorneys. But I had given her a checklist of what really needed to be done. And I said, I told her to ask the attorneys what they thought about the list. I think she ended up in interviewing, she told me, four attorneys. And every one of them came up with a plan on how to, you know, try to get the child back. And all four of them quoted her a price lower than the price I had quoted her. But she then asked all the attorneys if this, if these things on this checklist needed to be done. Every one of the attorneys, except for one of them, said that all of that needed to be done. And if she wanted it to be done, they'd have to charge her more money. Oh, wow. All four of them said that if she wanted those things done, that they were going to charge her a price that was more than what I had quoted her. She's called me back, and you know I told her that um, I was not going to be available the rest of the week um, because I'm going out of town to, for business, but that I could meet with her on Monday or Tuesday. Now, remember, I've been corresponding with her via email for quite some time, and she's losing time. You know, a lot has to be done. As you know, there are deadlines. Right. For, um, you know, there were witnesses that needed to be uh, subpoenaed. Um, you know, all that type of stuff for the hearing. And... Uh, if she calls me on Monday, uh, or if we meet on Monday or Tuesday, you know, I'm going to let her know. Um, you know, a lot of work has to be done in a very short time. And if you're not able to hire me or decide that you're not going to hire me, you need to hire someone quick.
quickly because, you know, as I said, she lost custody of her child at an ex parte hearing okay. uh, based upon based upon a stipulation that she and her attorney signed. Now, I don't know the attorney that she had, but as you know, Raj, the rule is you can't lose custody at um, a hearing unless it's an extreme emergency, life or death kind of situation. Yeah. In in her case, the attorney advised her to sign the stipulation. And from what she told me, based upon what she told me, there was no life or death situation. So what I think happened, and I'm just speculating, is she had an attorney who didn't know, who wasn't an expert about family law, didn't know that rule. And what I think happened is the attorney on the other side for the father was able to convince the attorney no matter what, no matter, you know, irrespective of the fact they didn't have the real evidence to change custody. And now the woman's going into um, a hearing having lost custody. And now she's got to climb a very tall mountain to get custody back. So that's what I was saying earlier. You, you know, as a prospective client, you have to know, find out, make sure somehow that the attorney you're hiring is an expert in family law. It's it was you know the part that I I took out of that and um, was really that I, I feel like this client was or potential client was underrepresented. Um, you know, to go into a hearing with an attorney, you're relying on that attorney's expertise, and she relied on this uh, on this attorney to give her good advice, and it uh, created more problems for her than than solutions, and that's that's the most unfortunate thing, and I I think that's why. Clients are always weary of price because you know they're putting their faith, their money into this person to help them get some results or at least protect them in some way. And um, you know when that faith gets misplaced, it it creates more uh, so many infinite problems that she's going to have to have to spend so much time, money, and energy to dig herself out of that hole that it's uh, it's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Rush, before we run out of time, I'm going to get to the last question. Been awarded full custody of my four children after a bad divorce. My ex-husband is now in jail, and we do not have any relatives around us for the children to interact with. One of my children is now experiencing a form of depression. It may have been from the divorce proceedings. Do I have to contact anyone before taking her to a therapist or giving her medication? Is there a possibility the court can remove my children from my care? What do you think? So this is, again, one of those scenarios where we need to have a little bit more detail. Um, you know, the fact that she was awarded full custody, that might just be full physical custody and not full legal custody. Um, so we would need to find out more information there. Um, let's assume for the sake of this uh, uh, question that it's joint uh, legal custody. When there's uh, legal custody, for those of us who are listening to for the first time, legal custody involves the decisions that this person has to make regarding uh, schooling, medical procedures, 
um, extracurricular activities, uh, travel, all those kinds of things. So uh, when there's joint legal custody, both parties need to at least be informed uh, as to what the decision might be or what the course of action might be, and then uh, and then agree to it. And in the event that they don't agree, uh, the court can appoint a, a person to be the tiebreaker, or you have to go back into court to ask for the court to make a decision. Um, so the fact, you know, this case has a complicated factor in that the husband is, is in jail. So, um, you know, for her, her primary obligation as a custodial parent is to look out for the health and safety and welfare of her child. So uh, I would encourage her to at least contact uh, the ex-husband, if she has joint legal custody, if she has sole, sole legal custody, she doesn't have to, she mostly just has to tell him out of courtesy, but doesn't need his consent. Um, and then she can go ahead and, you know, have the child meet with a therapist and um, follow that therapist's recommendations. Um, regarding the possibility of the court taking away the child from her care, I don't think that's possible. Um, if if she's worried about the, the court taking that child away from her care because she uh, took them to get medical treatment in light of what she was seeing, that can be um, easily explained at a hearing or easily defended at a hearing, and um, I don't think she should worry about that at all. But we would need to see her custody papers and find out whether she has sole legal or, or joint legal and then go from there. Um, but it would be advisable to at least uh, give the husband who's in jail at least a small bit of notice. I don't think she has any problems at all if the child of the husband is in jail. As a matter of fact, um, she either she probably, if she doesn't already have, can go back to court and get full legal custody, and then you know she can do anything she wants with respect to medical treatment, non-emergency medical treatment, anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, for emergency medical treatment, there's. Uh, there's typically no consent or no uh, consent or notice that has to be required. Usually, uh, the standard forms ask that you give notice within 24 hours of any emergency proceeding, but uh, or emergency treatment. But uh, the fact that the husband's in jail, she actually needs the authority to be able to do all of these things. So, if she doesn't have it already, she could, I think, very easily go back to court. And um, and win at least temporary sole legal custody while the husband is in jail. So uh, I would agree with you, Vince. I don't think she has many problems, um, and I don't think she would get into much trouble if any of these things ar arose. Uh, but you know, uh, she may want to make sure all of her ducks are in a row um, and really strengthen her legal position if she if she wanted to. Right. Well, Raj, we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank you very much for co-hosting with me. And um, our next show on divorce and family law will be next Wednesday, and it will be from 7 to 8 p.m. If listeners want to call in and uh, ask questions, uh, the number is 646-668-8791. Uh, and uh, I or Attorney Raj Matani can be reached at any time at area code 888-888-6582. And we're here to answer all of your questions about divorce and about family law. Raj, good night, and I'll be speaking with you later. Good night, Ben.